0: We expect a lot from our homes. They're more than a place to hang your hat. They're where you try your hand at gardening and new recipes, where you rest and recharge, where you work and play. And that's why at Home Advisor, we're committed to keeping your home up and running. Whether you need to repair an overloaded appliance or you're looking to create a backyard retreat worthy of a summer staycation, use the Home Advisor app day or night and we'll find a local pro to get the job done right. Whatever you need, we'll do everything to fix your, well, everything. Download the Home Advisor app to get started.
1: Root of Evil is a production of C13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13, in partnership with TNT. This story contains strong language and graphic and potentially disturbing content. Discretion is advised.
2: Well, Fauna. Mm -hmm. Hello. I'm here. Hi, Fauna. I'm here.
3: In episode one, we told the story of our mother, Fauna Hodel, and how she tried to track down her biological mother, Tamar Hodel. And when she finally did, she began to notice that Tamar was a very different person from who she'd imagined. This is a telephone conversation that they had shortly after they found each other. And this is my grandmother, Tamar's voice.
2: I felt from the beginning when you first came that you had unconsciously, and I do feel that was true, and if you were going to hate me for it, but I told it to you before, that you felt that I gave you away, that was just an inner feeling that I'd given you away. See, I, I told you all along that that had nothing to do with it.
4: And that's our mom, Fana Hodel's voice.
2: My situation with you was solely upon the very first time I came to Hawaii, and I felt your, there, was, there was a real manipulative vibration about you, and that's why I only stayed in that house for six days. It had nothing to do with you having given me away. I didn't like what I was seeing. I felt uncomfortable in it. It's just like all the people that you've been involved in, I hear so many bad things and then I come, and then I hear all these bad things from them about what you have said about me. You know, and there are still a lot of things that all this, it seems like everything that something goes on in your life, it turns to helter-skelter and confusion, and I don't like it, and that's why I said that I haven't spent that much time around you, because no matter what it is, it always, it seems to turn into a piece of shit. well... well and that's the truth i mean even just a simple matter of coming to pick you up it's a matter of waiting you know on you and it just gets to be real i've been haven't i been on time haven't i improved in every way about everything you've improved tremendously but i am saying the things that have made me feel real and comfortable and it just it seems like everything is just there's nothing real Easygoing, and I like my life to be easygoing, and I don't like all the confusion associated with the involvement, you know, with you
3: Remember, Fauna Hodel was given away at birth to a black woman and raised thinking she was biracial Then, when she finally found Tamar, she learned the truth, and there was never a sense of normal again after that for any of us
4: When mom found out that she was not black, that her father was not Negro, it was like taking a crystal ball and smashing it with a hammer. Completely, utterly dissembling who she was, who she thought she was, who she believed uh, she could be. Devastation, like I, Don't think she ever recovered from that because she was always searching for who she was her whole life.
5: To be chosen to speak at the Diversity Conference is, this symposium is just an honor. I've been working to tell my story since I was eight years old. I mean, and I'm, I'm okay with telling my age. I'm 64 years old. So it's been a long journey.
4: This is mom in 2014 giving a lecture on diversity.
5: When I was eight years old, I vowed I was going to grow up and make a difference with my life. It's so interesting. I, I have a black daughter. I have a white daughter. One of my daughters is a gay woman. And at the end of the day, it's all about the color of love. My oldest daughter, Yvette, called me today, and she knew how excited I was about this presentation. And she said, Mom, you just tell them that your daughters represent the colors of love. And at the
6: end of the day, we're all humans on this planet. My sister and I are as physically polar opposite as you can get, especially because I've only been this size for five years. Prior to this, I was morbidly obese. You know, I had weight loss surgery five years ago, so I, I think Yvette and I look a little bit more alike now that I am actually <laughs> closer in size to her. And we're 11 years apart. You know, Yvette's biracial. I'm blonde hair, blue-eyed. Yvette is straight. I'm gay. Russia is a pistol,
4: a ball of fire, a force to be reckoned with, um... She's my baby sister, (laughs) and uh, I wouldn't trade her for the world. She stands up for what she believes in, no matter what. And I have so much respect for her as a human being, for a mother, a daughter, and a sister.
6: My sister, Yvette, she was my first best friend. My first soulmate but I I have been so proud of my sister from the moment I was born I emulated her I idolized her I followed her around like a little puppy dog she's loving and kind and so fiercely protective from day one she was my protector I'm proud
4: to be Rasha's big sister. And I'm proud to be Fana Hodel's daughter. But in the Hodel family, there's also a lot to be ashamed of. And no matter how hard we try to rise above our past, nothing can protect us from the
3: truth.
7: Break up that radio. Let me tell y'all a story.
3: When our mom found her real mother, she learned her whole life was a lie. But she also found out the awful truth that her grandfather, George Hodel, was investigated as the killer of Elizabeth Short, also known as the Black Dahlia. On this episode, the crime, the suspect, and the son who began to connect them decades later. This is Root of Evil, the true story of the Hodel family and the Black Dahlia. I'm Rasha, and I'm Yvette, and
4: we're your hosts.
0: We expect a lot from our homes. They're more than a place to hang your hat. Your home is where you try your hand at gardening and new recipes, rest and recharge, work and play. And that's why at Home Advisor, we're committed to keeping your home up and running no matter what. From the projects that creep up on you, like appliance repairs, gutter cleanings, and faucet fixes, to the ones you look forward to, like creating your very own backyard retreat worthy of a summer staycation, we'll find local pros to help you get the job done right. Use the HomeAdvisor app, day or night, to get matched with the best pros for your projects. You can book and pay for more than 100 projects with just a few taps. Plus, see the tasks trending in your neighborhood. Whether you need a last-minute fix routine home maintenance, or an exciting new upgrade, HomeAdvisor is standing by, ready to do everything to fix your everything. Download the HomeAdvisor app today to get started.
5: And now
1: we open the files on one of this nation's unsolved murders. It's homicide file number DR-295771, the Los Angeles, California Police Department. The Unsolved Murder of Elizabeth Short, The Black Dahlia.
3: There's a whole cottage industry that has fed off the Black Dahlia and the theories about who killed her for decades. Movies, books, TV shows, YouTube videos with millions of hits. There's even a band called Black Dahlia Murder and a bus tour in L.A. you can go on that takes you to the victim's last known sightings. But then, in 2003, a book called Black Dahlia Avenger was released. It was a New York Times bestseller, and it cut through all of the clutter with the most compelling argument yet as to who the killer was. And his name was George Hodel, Yvette's and my great-grandfather. The author of the book was George's son, Steve Hodel.
8: You couldn't make this story up. You couldn't go to a studio and say, hey, I got an idea for a story and it's the son and he grows up to become a cop and his father. They'd say, get the hell out of here, are you crazy? The fact that this incredible story is real, it's historical, they couldn't make the story up.
4: That's Steve Hodel. You'll be hearing a lot from Steve throughout this series. He's our mom, Fauna Hodel's uncle. So to Rasha and I, Steve is our great uncle. He's 77 years old now, and he's spent the last 20 years of his life investigating his own father as the Black Dahlia murderer. There's a photo that Uncle Steve has from when he was little. He's sitting on George Hodel's lap. The father, a murder suspect. And the son he's holding? The one who would eventually set out to prove it. Steve grew up to become a decorated homicide detective for many years in Los Angeles, with over 300 murder investigations under his belt. If there's any authority on this murder, it's our uncle, Steve Hodel.
8: A fair amount of people are familiar with the crime name itself, Black Dahlia. But if you ask somebody, are you familiar with the Elizabeth Short murder, they're going to say, no, never heard of it. And so very few people know who the victim actually was other than this pseudonym. When the officers respond to the crime scene, they have a nude body. She's a Jane Doe, Jane Doe number 1. It's January 15, 1947. No ID, no purse, nothing. The detectives note that the body has been drained of blood, it's sanguinated. There's no blood at all at the crime scene, so they they know immediately that it occurred elsewhere because there would have been a lot of blood. And they discover that the body has been washed clean. The right breast is completely excised, removed. They look at the left thigh, and they see a large chunk of flesh has been removed. There's a 4- to 5-inch incision right above the pubic area, which was totally consistent with a hysterectomy. There was blunt force trauma to the head. She'd been struck multiple times on the head. The other horror that the detectives discovered at the crime scene was that her mouth had been cut almost ear to ear. Also clearly observable was that the body had not just been thrown out of a car and, and just dumped there. It was carefully... Posed just off of the sidewalk. The upper torso, the hands were over the head as if he were surrendering or giving up. And then carefully juxtaposed, maybe six inches to the west of the upper torso was the lower half. The legs were spread wide open. So it was clearly that somebody was trying to make some kind of a statement here and had carefully posed the body. It was absolutely horrific.
3: She was cut completely in two, with each half of her body posed for the most shocking effect. The upper half with her arms raised was moved far enough away from her lower half, with its legs spread the person who first discovered her thought it was two pieces of a mannequin. The detectives took her fingerprints and within a day, they'd ID'd her as 22-year-old Elizabeth Short. There wasn't much evidence left at the scene, but one of the first detectives there made note of something.
8: He noted that there were some cement sacks in close proximity to the body and he saw watery blood on several of these sacks. And it came out that these sacks were actually used to transport her body parts from somewhere to the scene. The body wasn't put inside the sacks. The body was placed on top of the sacks. And these were large 50-pound cement sacks. Also found there were manure fertilizer sacks also, 50 pounds.
3: Carrying the upper and lower halves of the body on cement and fertilizer bags seemed random. But according to Dr. Robert Shug, a criminal mind scientist and forensic psychologist and professor at Long Beach State University, there was nothing random about this crime scene. And the person responsible for this murder was meticulous and calculating.
9: The area of the brain that we're most focused on is the frontal lobe, or the prefrontal cortex, more specifically. And this is the part of the brain, in evolutionary terms, that developed last. It's really the thing that separates us from the next lowest form of primate and then on down the chain. And so it's thought that this prefrontal cortex is that sort of governance, that emergency break, the area that is responsible for what we call executive functions. That area responsible for executive functions is often implicated in research studies of crime and violence, with the idea being that people who have problems in that area of the brain cannot stop themselves from acting out. This is the guy in the bar who gets in a fight with his friend and stabs him because he doesn't have the governance mechanism, the emergency brake, the prefrontal functioning to stop himself. Now, that being said, and that explains a lot of violence and what we would call reactive violence, what we see in this picture, I don't believe represents reactive violence. I think this person had, if not normal executive function, probably better than a lot of folks to be able to plan and organize and maybe inhibit the type of emotions that most of us would have and carry this thing through, not only in terms of the damage to the body, but then... The posing, that takes a lot of brain power. And so I don't think we're looking at someone who is this sort of impulsive, irrational, act-before-you-think type of person. This act seems to be very well executed, and I would imagine thought out for a fair amount of time. I've never seen this degree of post-mortem mutilation combined with the posing. And I've seen some pretty bad crime scene photos.
4: But it wasn't until later that the true horrors of what was done to Elizabeth Short were revealed. Steve told us what the police observed at the crime scene. But the following is a list of what she endured prior to her death, as well as post-mortem.
7: Ligature marks on feet and hands. Ligature marks on neck. Eight cigarette burns on back. Blunt force trauma to face and head. Scalpel lacerations to upper lip. Tic tac toe cross shaped scalpel cuttings to right hip. Scalpel laceration, two inches in length near left nipple. Removal of right breast. Slashes from corners of mouth to ears to form a gruesome permanent smile. Sodomy, using unknown object. Removal of large section of flesh from left thigh and insertion into vagina. Incision, from umbilicus to suprapubic, four and a half inches in length, similar to hysterectomy. Surgical bisection of body, between second and third lumbar vertebrae. Washing and scrub down of two body sections, using a coconut fiber brush to remove fingerprints. Stomach filled with unknown greenish-brown granular material and mostly feces, determination, victim forced to consume feces prior to death.
4: As the LAPD was trying to work on a suspect list, the press was slowly leaking out details of the damage done to Elizabeth Short. They ran early stories with headlines calling it the werewolf murder. And then they found out, from people who knew her, that with her dark hair, Elizabeth Short had been given a nickname. The Black Dahlia. And that name, as much as anything else, helped to fuel the fascination with this story.
1: It was the source of horrified entertainment. Crime was entertainment. In those days, I mean, crime really dominated entertainment.
3: This is author John Bunton. He writes about cities, police, and crime. And his book, L.A. Noir The Struggle for the Soul of America's Most Seductive City, explored those themes in Los Angeles during this time.
1: Los Angeles had a rich newspaper and tabloid culture. All of these papers had underworld columnists, crime reporters you know crime was central to entertainment in a pre-TV world when people still got morning and evening newspapers and you know newspapers in those days they had a lot of pizzazz the, the newspapers that we have today they're they're so boring in comparison They don't have that emotional connection to readers that the tabloids in Los Angeles did. And when you had a really grisly, horrifying homicide like that, you know, this was the story that you ran with. The Black Dahlia murder was a spectacularly grisly killing. For anyone who's seen the pictures, it's very disturbing. People wouldn't be talking about Elizabeth Short if that description had never been affixed to her. And that just sort of speaks to the function that crime served in that period.
4: It sold papers. And there was a Black Dahlia cover story in the L.A. Times for 31 straight days. Here's our great uncle, Steve Hodell, again.
8: It went viral in the sense that it went across the nation and New York papers covered it and all over So you had those factors all merging together in kind of a perfect storm of sensationalism. A beautiful woman, this name, Black Talia, and the horrors of the crime itself, which were really, I think, probably distinguished it, well, let me put it this way. In my 300 murder investigations, I never had anything close to the horrors that this poor woman was subjected to.
3: There was no such thing as DNA evidence in 1947. So detectives focused on the precise way Elizabeth Short's body had been cut in half. They figured that it had to be someone with extensive surgical experience.
8: Initially, LAPD investigators started looking at the bisection. Ray Pinker was the criminalist and their expert. And he called in a surgeon-doctor. And they studied the tissue photographs and they took a look at it and determined that this had to have been a skilled surgeon. That this was not some hack job, this was not a butcher. And the reason is because it was actually a surgical procedure that was performed on her body and it's called a hemicorpectomy. And this was taught in medical schools, in the surgeon schools in the 1930s here in the U.S., And it's a procedure where they divide the body in half, and there's only one way you can do it, by going between the second and third lumbar vertebrae with a scalpel. Otherwise, you have to cut through bone. So the only way you can perform this and divide the body without going through bone is by performing this surgery between the second and third lumbar vertebrae. The
3: lead investigator was named Lieutenant Jemison, and he narrowed down the suspect list from the initial 316 to 107, including 19 who falsely confessed to the murder. But of those 107, Jemison wrote a recommendation that Steve Hodell found. It said, after examination of the files and evidence, it appears that the investigative effort should be continued and concentrated on the following suspects. He then listed six names, and the final name of those six was Dr. George Hodell. But the LAPD was familiar with Dr. Hodell because he was already suspected of another cold and calculated murder.
10: The Iceman is a man. But just one thing is sure There's something in his business That affects his temperature Oh, love is such a funny thing For I found out once or twice That all I can get from the Iceman Is ice, ice, ice!
8: My father was born in 1907 in downtown Los Angeles. He was raised as a spoiled child. He was an only child. He was a musical prodigy, playing his own piano concerts at the Shrine Auditorium at the age of nine. His mother doted over him. He absolutely hated his mother. He would come in and say to her, hey mom, can I go out and play baseball with the boys? she would say, Georgie, you're a pianist, not a baseball player. You'll hurt your hands. Soon as she died, he quit piano, had nothing to do with it. And not only was he a musical prodigy, he was also intellectually gifted. And he achieved the highest scores in California history in the public schools. In high school, George
4: was given an IQ test genius level is considered to be any score over 140. He scored a 186. And he was off to college at 15 years old.
8: So at 15, dad is attending Caltech his first year, and he gets involved with a professor's wife. They have an affair, she gets pregnant. Results in breaking up her marriage. She goes back east to Massachusetts and actually has the child, who she names Folly. You know, the whole thing was such a Folly. And young George follows her back east, says, I want to marry you, I love you, I want to raise our child. And she just looks at him and just kind of laughs and says, George, you're a child yourself go away, I never want to see you again. He's totally rejected, he's laughed at by her. I think this probably was one of the big triggers in his life.
4: So George returned to L.A. He'd been expelled from Caltech, and he tried to pursue his first love, art. He self-published a newspaper which focused on the budding surrealist art movement and its outside-the-box thinking. This is an excerpt of a book review that George wrote in the first issue of what he called Fantasia.
7: Recurring and persistent refrain throughout is seen phallic symbolism, sometimes exhausting the sexual vocabulary and lecherous blatancy, sometimes shrouded in veils of yonic characterization. The black and white illustrations which accompany the text are massively and gauntly superb, though they are obviously forced in order to harmonize with the grotesque theme of the fantasy. With almost animate pigments has the author painted this monstrous dream, and with delicate and meticulous craftsmanship has he fashioned its cadaverous and perverse beauty. Signed, George Hill Hodell.
3: He was
4: 17 years old when he wrote that.
8: You know, with his intellectual gifts and stuff, what he really wanted to be was he wanted to develop his creative side. He got into photography, and he actually had a one-man show in Pasadena of his works. But he was never really recognized or accepted as a creative, as an artist, which is something he really wanted to be. And he surrounded himself with artistic friends, real artists, but never really was personally recognized, which I think was a problem for him. George then enrolled at UC Berkeley,
4: and after four years as a pre-med student, he went to medical school, where he studied surgery.
8: I would check his transcripts, and we'd discover he had 750 hours of surgery. He then goes on, after he gets his M.D., to become the sole surgeon at a logging camp in Arizona. Then comes back to Los Angeles and joins the L.A. County Health Department. He specializes in V.D. control and quickly rises to the top, becomes the head V.D. control officer for the entire Los Angeles County.
2: As Surgeon General of your Army... I know that the subject of this film is a deadly enemy and a menace to our armed forces. For too long, we have allowed a social taboo to prevent effective discussion and action.
8: Here, we have told only part of the story
1: of venereal disease control. Untold is the fine work of churches, schools, and social agencies are doing to prevent the promiscuity which spreads infection. It is important to remember that the only sure way for the individual to avoid infection is to avoid exposure. Learn the facts. With knowledge and intelligent action, the people of America can eradicate the venereal diseases.
10: In the 1930s and 40s, estimates were that 10% of the population would have syphilis at some point in their life. And Somewhere between 20 to 40 percent of the population would have gonorrhea. It was seen as a scourge and the last major infectious disease that we needed to conquer.
3: This is Aaron Webker, a professor of history at Queens College who specializes in the history of public health and venereal disease control in the 1930s and 40s.
10: So in the 1940s, we're preparing for World War II, we're fighting World War II, and so the health of our soldiers is really on the public's mind. It's on the minds of government officials, public health officials, and in particular, they're thinking a lot about venereal disease, or VD, because it was the number one health issue related to soldiers during World War I. So we lost the most days for soldiers being able to fight because of syphilis and gonorrhea. One of the other challenges related to venereal disease as a public health issue in this era is that there's a big taboo and a lot of stigma surrounding them. And this is partially because there's a long history of associating them with sex workers in particular, but also working class or poor people and also racial minorities in the United States. And so the illness itself is evidence that you have not been faithful to your spouse. You know, if you're a politician or somebody like that, you would definitely be worried about people finding out about these sorts of things. To be a person in charge of the public health or medical efforts to control venereal disease would have been an important position in this era.
3: As the VD czar of Los Angeles, George Hodel had some very high-profile patients, and he kept tabs on all of them. But he also used his position to find other ways to take advantage of the stigma that VD carried. And Steve Hodel found evidence of it.
8: I would discover that he was actually misdiagnosing deliberately misdiagnosing they would come back negative on the slides let's say for gonorrhea and he would say yeah it's positive he was charging them 75 100 bucks back then which was you know like a thousand today so obviously another source of income misdiagnosing and this was about to be revealed by his secretary ruth spaulding
4: Steve uncovered a letter written by one of George's misdiagnosed patients. She'd gotten a second opinion. And she sent a letter along with the results to George Hodel's secretary, Ruth Spaulding.
8: She never, in fact, had gonorrhea. So she wrote this letter documenting this and sending it to his secretary and saying, number one, I would like my money back how dare he do something like this? It's really ruined my life in many ways. Ruth Spaulding was a secretary for my father at his first street clinic in the early 40s. And she worked for him for a number of years. They had a romantic relationship for some time, and then it stopped. She was very upset with the breakup. And then she had apparently threatened to go to the authorities with some information she had, which included these phony diagnoses, also along with that, some illegal abortions. She was absolutely going to expose George for his wrongdoing, and she'd actually written a couple of manuscripts. She communicated this to George, and he said, well, look, I've been wanting to get back together with you. Hold off, let me come down and we'll talk. He goes down Next thing we know is that my mom gets a call from George late at night, says, come down, I'm at Ruth Spalding's apartment in downtown L.A. Ruth is unconscious, in bed. My mother says, what's with Ruth? George says, she'll be all right. She's fine. She took an overdose. She attempted suicide. So dad gives them manuscripts to mom and says, burn these. She does. She leaves. He waits. And, of course, being a doctor, he knows at what point is beyond recovery. And so she's comatose, Ruth's comatose. He then calls a cab, takes her to Georgia Street Receiving Hospital, which was a couple of miles away. And she dies 20 minutes later. So, already in 45, he was under suspicion of murder.
7: Crank up that radio. Let me tell y'all a story.
4: Next time
8: on Root of Evil. I come from a very unusual family. And I didn't realize it was unusual until I got older. And I had a hard time relating to people when they wanted to say, you know, well, tell me about your family.
4: We begin to uncover the things that happened to our family 70 years ago, things none of us have recovered from.
3: Thanks for listening to Episode 2 of Root of Evil, the true story of the Hodel family and the Black Dahlia.
1: Root of Evil is an eight-episode series produced by C-13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13, in partnership with TNT.